We're doing free uh, flu shots after this morning's service, so if you want to stop by uh, one of our our pharmacists, Joe Henning, uh, you'll find him out in the library area if you want to get a flu shot. I think I'm going to get one. Actually, I know I'm going to get one for the first time in my entire life, by the way. And maybe that'll help me prepare for the polar polar plunge at the man man camp uh, that's come up in a couple weeks. We're in a series called FAQs, Frequently Asked Questions, and we've been tackling some of the toughest questions uh, that Christianity faces, that we face in faith and life. And, for example, we began the series by talking about and uh, responding to the question, uh, if there, we have a loving God, why is there evil and suffering? Why do things like Las Vegas happen? Another question that we respond to, is the Bible really true and reliable? Uh, of all the different uh, perspectives in this culture that we have of pluralism, really is the Bible uh, above and beyond that? And then last week, uh, my good friend Joel Johnson from Westwood just, just uh, did a phenomenal job. It was such a pleasure uh, and a privilege for me to have him here. And he answered the question of that if uh, the church is full of hypocrites, of Christians and pastors are hypocrites, why in the world should I attend a church? And it's actually one of the most prominent reasons that are holding people back from uh, attending the church. And the American church is declining, and that's one of the reasons why. And this morning I want to continue with the series on FAQs, uh, tackling this question, a nice, easy, uh, less controversial one. Why has Christianity been unfair to women? Easy one, right? Well, I grew up in a church and a denomination that actually put restrictions on women in terms of, uh, of what kind of roles that they could serve in. They couldn't teach, they couldn't lead, uh, they couldn't be elders, they couldn't be deacons. And growing up in, a, in this church in rural Wisconsin, I always wondered about that because my mom would play the organ, she'd play the piano, and yet she couldn't serve in certain roles. And, and I, I really wondered around that. A long time ago, there was actually a preacher named John R. Rice. He wrote a book. You can uh, search for this on Amazon if you want to read it. It's called Bobbed Hair, Bossy Wives, and Women Preachers. And it says this in there. Rice writes this, I have no doubt millions will go to hell because of the unscriptural practice of women preachers. I think John had a certain perspective on this topic. There's a a book of letters little children write to God, and and some of them are really cute. And there's, there's one, though, that stood out to me on this topic. Uh, dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, but try to be fair. <laughs> so what I want to do, I want to dive into this topic. I could definitely do a series on this topic, but what I want to do is kind of give you a, sort of a flyover of Scripture when it comes to women around this, this uh, idea that they're, they're not equal to men. Because I believe that throughout the Bible that it's been mistranslated, misinterpreted, misapplied by churches. And I want to make an argument that women are equal with men. Let's turn in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 1. If you have a Bible, let's turn to that. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. It's easy to find if you have a, your own Bible in your hands. It's just the right of the table of contents. It's very easy to find. And we're actually going through chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Genesis. And I had a seminary professor that once, once told me that much of our Christian faith and theology can be found in the th- first three chapters of Genesis. And, you know, I, I was just uh, really uh, naive and sort of a rebellious seminary student. I just kind of laughed at him. I said, yeah, right. Actually said it audibly in class. He just stared me down. And I found out that he's right. He is. So we're going to dive in this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, Father in heaven, I lift up this sermon to you. It's such an important topic. I pray that you would anoint my lips and anoint this message as I speak, Lord, that you would open our eyes for some of us 
uh, looking at a very, very, very familiar passages, but perhaps not seeing it from this perspective. God, and I, and I do this with humility. And um, I pray that your voice would speak in and through me. And Lord, that we would walk away uh, transformed in terms of our, our, our perspective, our concept of wrong humanity, and also the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this, then God, then God said, let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. They will be masters over all life. Just stop right there for a second. He doesn't say men. Let's make men in our image. doesn't say that. So the idea is, one of the arguments is that this is the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, and, and uh, God is saying, let us make people. Not the same men. And then secondly, uh, to have dominion, to rule and reign. That's male and female, to be like ourselves. They will be masters over all life. It's they, not he. They, men and women together. And it talks about the animals. And we go to verse 27. So he, God created people in his own image. Now you're teaching notes. You want to follow along because I'm going to go through a number of passages here. And the first note that you want to make is that there's something incredibly rare that we find here in ancient literature is this, this statement in Genesis that women, alongside with men, are actually created in the image of God. You do not find that in other ancient literature, according to N.T. Wright. You do not find that anywhere. It's a remarkable claim that actually women are created in the image of God, just like men. You would not find that among any tribe or any group of people during that time. It's a singular phrase. It's very important. And then with that is that we see the completeness of God. This, this idea of bearing images that men and women together completely bear the image of God. We need each other. We need each other for the completeness, the comprehensiveness of God's image being reflected. And that was God's plan from the very beginning is mutuality, equality, right from the get-go, okay? Let's move on to Genesis chapter 2. And this is not in your teaching notes, so you may want to look this up. But we get into uh, verse 20 of Genesis chapter 2. And again, this is another look at creation uh, from a different angle. This is a lot more zoomed in. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 is kind of like the 30,000 foot level, but this is very much getting down on the, the streets of creation. And we're seeing, seeing uh, what God's doing here, very meticulous. It says in verse 20, this is, um, this is Adam. He gave names to all the livestock, birds, and wild animals, but still there is no companion, companion suitable for him. In other words, the dogs and the cats just didn't do it. Uh, man needed something else. He, he needed something else to complete him. He needed some companionship. And we pick it up here in verse 21. So the Lord God caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. He took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the place from which he had taken it. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and brought her to Adam. Now, this is kind of a side deal. I, a pastor friend of mine knew this couple in his church, and they were actually going through Genesis. And this passage came up, and later in the week, this pastor was talking to his friend, and, and, and his friend said, you know, me and my wife, we were having this argument. And she was winning, like most of the time women do, right? Uh, he goes, she was winning. And, and, and finally, I just said, give me my rib back. It's kind of a joke. Anyways, I thought it was funny. So you may want to use that. I don't know. Anyways, 
But what we find right here is in verse 20, the statement, but still there is no companionable suitable for him. He falls into deep sleep. And then it talks about this fact that of, of a woman as a helper. When it says no companion suitable for him, other translations, it's this word helper, that God creates Eve as a helper. Now, I grew up in the tradition that helper uh, was sort of this idea that God made woman to be a, sort of a junior assistant for, for the man. I thought the idea as a young boy growing up and hearing sermons that Adam couldn't get all the tasks done, so he kind of needed a gopher lower, lower on the org chart. That's what it sounds like when you say helper or helpmate. Somebody he could delegate stuff to in, in, in regard to getting stuff done. But the problem is, is that when you translate and look at the word helper throughout the canopy of the Old Testament, over and over and over again, it doesn't refer so much to humanity. It refers to God. God is called the helper. It's the same word. So obviously, that word is not meant to be a subordinate, right? It's not meant to be lower on the org chart. If that's your thought about God, you and I need to talk, okay? The psalmist says this, We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our helper and our shield. It's the same word that is used. Let's move on. Genesis chapter 3. We get into this section of, of the curses. And what happened is that uh, Adam and Eve had sinned and had taken of the forbidden fruit. And we look at when God comes to them, He actually lays out these curses for the serpent, for the woman, and for the man. And we need to understand, um, I believe this, that God doesn't curse them. He is simply stating the curse, the natural byproduct of the effect of sin. This is what happens. And I think for a lot of us too, by the way, uh, our theology, our faith, begins in Genesis chapter 3 instead of, instead of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. It's so important to start with 1 and 2 as we make it our way into 3. We pick it up in uh, verse 3, it's, and this is what happens. This mutuality, this oneness that Adam and Eve had breaks down in Genesis 3, uh, 3 verse 12, after they had taken of the fruit, and God says, Adam, you, you've taken of the fruit, you disobeyed me. And Adam, being clever and very brilliant, says this, yes, Adam admitted, but it was the woman you gave me who brought me the fruit and I ate it. Right away we have the breakdown. That's one of the, the byproducts of sin, is this mutuality, this oneness among the genders is, is broken down, it's shattered. And then we get into the passage where God gives the curse to the serpent, and then he makes his way and, and says to the woman, this statement right here, is that though you, your desire will be for your husband, he will be your master. In other words, he will rule over you. Now, we take that passage, and I've, I've, I've actually heard, again, sermons based on this, that this is why uh, men lead and women follow, is that it says right here in Genesis chapter 3 that he will rule over you. That's not God's plan. That's an effect of sin. The plan was this mutuality and equality that we, we see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, is that they're together. But because of sin, now we're going to have a struggle for power among the genders. Okay? This is not God's plan that there, that there be this, this power struggle between male and female. And that's one of the effects of sin. Now, as we look ahead in your teaching notes, um, number two is simply that was not God's plan. It was the effect of sin. But then also number three is that Scripture clearly shows women as leaders 
throughout the entire Bible, then this might be new, new for you. And I just kind of want to go through a bulleted list, and I could go way beyond this, but there are a number of women in the, in the, in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that were anointed leaders, teachers, at certain times for God's kingdom and His purposes. Miriam, for example, Exodus chapter 15, the sister of Moses, she is called a prophet. In Numbers 12, it says that she's called one through whom the Lord spoke. So someone saying, thus saith the Lord, that had authority. That had teaching ability. That had leadership. And Miriam, it was regarded as a prophet. Not another one, you may not know her. Her name is Huldah. In the second book of Kings, we were told that Josiah was, uh, was the king of Israel at the time, but Israel was in a, a time of chaos. They desperately needed spiritual renewal. And it says in second Kings that Hilkiah the priest, Hanakim, Abkor, Shaphan, Asiah went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom. Okay, it took me almost a week to get those Hebrew names down. That was bonus. That was bonus for you guys this morning. Okay, and and also when you when you look at that and, and she, she actually says she said to them this is what the Lord says and she talks about what God's word is for them at that time and she's regarded as a prophet as well. Then we move into Judges, Judges chapter four. We read about a woman named Deborah, and back then a judge was a leader of not only judicial matters but also political and spiritual. They were the folks before the kings came. Okay, before King Saul, they were the judges. And Deborah was a judge. And nowhere in the text does it say, well, Deborah was a judge because there was no man fit for doing the job. It doesn't say that. The text does not say that. I've heard that assumption by people, uh, not here, but when I was growing up, that, well, she was there because there was no man fit. No, that wasn't true at all. Deborah is a leader. And after Deborah, we move into the book of Acts. We learn about a person named Priscilla. And we find out about her in Acts chapter 18. I'm not going to have a, a time to actually look this up. But it's very important because in Acts chapter 18, you might, may want to write this down, but we read about this couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And they're accompanying Paul in his ministry. In fact, Priscilla and Aquila come across a very gifted and talented uh, teacher named Apollos. But Apollos doesn't have the gospel right. And they actually uh, invite him to their house and it's Priscilla and Aquila who kind of show him what the gospel is and what God's plan is for humanity with the Gentiles. It's amazing. Now get this, in Greek literature, the sequence of names is very important. It's always Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas, Priscilla and Aquila. Hmm. Just saying, just saying. We get to Romans chapter 16. You may want to look at this. This is where Paul kind of, he gives a shout out to all his peeps. He's saying, thank you for this. Thank you for this person. And then he mentions Phoebe. And Phoebe's actually, he mentions, is a deacon in the church, a very influ influential leader in the church that she's involved in. If you look this up in Romans chapter 16, as he closed the letter out. And for Paul to actually do that, again, to name a woman as a leader was very, very rare. And then we come into, in the same chapter, later on, a woman named Junia. And Junia is called an apostle. Hmm. Let that sink in for a moment. 
Now, some of the early uh, translations of the Bible, some of the men that were doing, doing the, sort of the copying and writing it down, you know, of, of extra copies, you know, by candlelight, and they didn't like that because Junia is a feminine name, so obviously it's a woman. What they did is they would add an S to make it masculine. But our best transcripts, our best manuscripts that we have, most reliable ones, say, no, it's, it's Junia. Uh, she was a woman and she was an apostle. Are we preaching yet? Craig, we're preaching. Let's preach it together, all right? So as we're, whoa. Katie. Where were you? You're supposed to catch me. <laughs> That's what you're there for. <laughs> we, we rehearsed this like 10 times. We did. I have never done that before. But this just shows you that as we look at this list, you can see throughout the Bible a number of women who are in the Bible who are loving Jesus, who are gifted, and are serving the Lord. And throughout history, you see a number of individuals. But you also see in history this debate, this debate that actually you can go back, historians have dated it back to about the third century, where you begin to see documents that have been written about what women could and could not do within ministry settings. And as you look at these teachings, there, there begins to be this limitation that happens where women are asked not to do things, or even more in the tradition you grew up in, told that they cannot. All of this is happening in history while women are continuing to baptize, teach, preach, interpret scripture, engage in visitation. So gender has served and continues to serve as a point of debate, as a point of contention in evangelical history. And even to this day, I don't know if you've ever asked, why has Christianity been unfair to women? In my setting, working in higher education, working with young adults, I've been a part of this conversation a number of times. And when I'm in that conversation, usually I hear the focus on how is Christianity limited women in leadership, teaching, and preaching. So consider with me for a moment the story of a university student. This student is female. This student is a daughter. She is a sister. She is a gifted teacher, and she has chosen ministry. But while she has chosen ministry, she wrestles and struggles with her calling of God calling her to ministry in the local church while she hears other voices that tell her no. You see, she grew up in a church tradition like Craig's, where women can teach Sunday school for children, but not adults because women are not to have authority over men. She's been taught in that church tradition that she can volunteer, but not be a deacon, not be in any leadership position. And she's been taught that she can be up doing worship with the worship team on Sunday morning, but she can't be at the pulpit. She can't preach. So what does this woman do with this calling that God has placed on her life to use her gifts in the context of ministry in the local church? She wrestles with that, and she struggles with that as she hears voices telling her no. But that's not the only story. Consider the story of Kim. Kim is a daughter, a sister, a wife. Kim is a church planter in New York, and Kim is the lead pastor in that church. 
And Kim wrestles and struggles and holds this pain of feeling overlooked and undervalued. She was recently interviewed in an article, and she was asked about her experience as a woman church leader, a female church leader. Now, if you want to pay a little attention to this, never has a man asked what it's like to be a man as a church leader or church planter. But she's asked, what is it like, including her gender, to be a church planter? And she says, in my experience, people don't normally or naturally want to follow a woman leader. That may be culturally or it may be subconscious, and that's no different in the church. My assistant pastor is male, she'll tell you, and people will call her Kim and call him pastor. And she'll also tell the story of how when she's in the office, people will come in and walk right past her office to his office thinking he's the lead pastor. This pastor laments the pain and the isolation because of her gender in ministry. Now, let's take a third story. Let's take Anne. Anne is a sister, a daughter, a mother, a grandmother. She is a speaker, teacher, uh, evangelist. She has uh, started a nonprofit organization in North Carolina And she can tell you about how she's faced criticism and judgment because of her gender in the context of ministry. She can tell you experiences of where she was invited to this large conference to speak. And this is not an exaggeration. Literally, when she stood up, over 100 men, over 200 men, over 300, the count goes even higher, picked up their chairs and turned their chairs around, putting their back her as a statement. She also can tell you about how she's been instructed multiple times to preach from a microphone on the floor because women are not allowed to preach or to be in the pulpit. You see, what these stories tell us and what research tells us is that women have felt and continue to feel this sense of being misunderstood, of being undervalued, and sometimes being unwelcomed to use their gifts in the church. You see, men and women, they are asking the question, why has Christianity been unfair to women? Because they see the examples. They know the individuals that have been asked not to do certain things within the context of ministry, within the context of the local church. They have their sisters their mothers, and their daughters who have this great gifting and this great calling on their life, and yet they face roadblock after roadblock, largely due to an interpretation of a couple of passages. So what are one of those passages, Craig? And what does Jesus tell us, or what does he show us in the Gospels? Thanks, Katie. One of the uh, aspects that we see in Jesus, he's revolutionary in a number of ways, but um, a, a really an important way is how he invited and actually um, encouraged women to follow along with him. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 8. It's a very telling passage. And we see right here where Jesus, as he is um, going around and preaching the good news and sharing and healing people and uh, sharing about the, the kingdom of God, as we see in Luke chapter 8. 
uh, something very, very important, a very important detail. But you also need to know that at this time, um, among rabbis, now Jesus wasn't an official rabbi, but he definitely led and formed and custom his ministry very much like a rabbi would, um, that it was very common for rabbis, obviously, never to have women around them. And also a very common prayer, I found this in research, is that when rabbis woke up in the morning, there was a couple of prayers they would say, one of them is, thank you, Yahweh, that I'm not a woman. Jesus is different. He's different. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Not long afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby cities and villages to announce the good news concerning the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with, the, with him. Now get this, verse 2. Along with some women who had healed, who he had healed, and from whom he had cast out evil spirits. Among them was Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Joanna, the wife of Shuza, Herod's business manager. Susanna, so on and so forth. And, but so what we have here in your teaching notes is that in, in Jesus' ministry is that women accompanied him. Women accompanied him. That was very revolutionary. That women would actually would, would, would be there. And not only are they sort of there, because they're not on the periphery. We need to understand that, because we have that famous story of Mary and Martha. Many of you know that story. And, and Martha's busy in the kitchen making food. And, and Mary is what? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Okay, that right there, that's sort of a code word for discipleship. When a rabbi was discipling somebody, it was the, the, the code word of the phrase was they would sit at the feet of, for example, Paul was discipled by a rabbi named Gamaliel. And it said that he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. So right, right away we see Mary who is sitting at the feet of Jesus and in very much is being discipled by Jesus. Women accompany Jesus in his ministry. It's revolutionary. And I, and I think when we, when we read that, we just don't realize how unique and, you, and rare that was, just like Genesis chapter 1. See, Jesus came to, to really uh, bring upheaval in a lot of ways. Among them was this sort of gender uh, division and really b- bringing back what was, what was God's plan in the very beginning around mutuality and equality. Let's move down to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this is a passage among, and another one is in, in Corinthians. We're not going to have time to jump into that. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, go ahead and turn to that. We're going to look at a passage that's often sort of, it's sort of pulled out as the trump card uh, in terms of why women ought not to be leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look at verses 11 through 14. And it's a tough passage. I've had a lot of people come to me and they'll read this. And it's like, what in the world is Paul really saying here? Women should listen and learn quietly and submissively. I do not let women teach men or have authority over over them, as Katie was alluding to in her stories. Let them listen quietly. For God made Adam first, and afterward he made Eve. And it was the woman, not Adam, who was deceived by Satan, and sin was the result. But women will be saved through childbearing and by continuing to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. It almost sounds like something of the Victorian age, right? Yeah, well, what in the world is going on here? This is not meant to be a prescription on how to do ministry in the church. This is a description of a local problem that's happening. This is based on research. If you want to talk more about this, also you have a website on the bottom of your second page if you want to learn more about good studies on this. 
But what we have here is Pastor Tim. He's a, he's a pastor of this, this uh, burgeoning church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is a cosmopolitan city like Paris, New York City. To over 200,000 people there. And what they have in Ephesus is the Temple of Artemis. And the Temple of Artemis was this sexual cult where women were worshipped. They were actually superior over men. And, and in the Temple of Artemis, there were male prostitutes, not female prostitutes, male prostitutes. And among what was happening at the Temple of Artemis, what was happening is they, they were uh, sort of recreating the story of humanity, saying that women were created first. And it was really man, men's fault for what has happened. And also, they said, believe in the, the goddess Artemis, because when you have ch- children... She will save you from childbearing. That's why that's mentioned there. Because it's a really funky passage. Let's be honest. He's responding to a local problem. This is not meant to be a prescription. It's a description of what was happening in Ephesus. And there's a similar, similar parallel passage we find in uh, 1 Corinthians as well. And they're dealing with a number of cults and a number of different beliefs about men and women. And Paul responds to that. Most of the time, in Paul's 13 letters, he's responding to a problem in the church. That's very important for us. Very important for us. And for us to know that Paul was not saying that women um, are, are meant exhaustively going in the future to remain silent. That women cannot be leaders in the church. Because if you compare this then with Romans chapter 16... It just doesn't make sense. But what was happening is that some of these people from the Temple of Artemis were actually beginning to integrate in the church at Ephesus and beginning to actually share this sort of false belief around creation, around God, and what would happen. And it's important for us to understand that as Paul talks about over and over is that he begins to make this transition in his letters towards giftedness. And that giftedness... Uh, spiritual gifts are not based on gender. It's based on what God gives to a person. And Katie's going to talk about giftedness. So as we look at this idea of in the Bible seeing these examples where you have women who are gifted and using their giftedness, we also have this dilemma that Craig began to talk about, this dilemma where we live in an era where there's confusion around an interpretation of a passage of 1 Timothy or in Corinthians or in Genesis. And we also live in an era where, because of gender, some women feel undervalued, unwelcomed to use their giftedness. So picture, if you would, I've invited a group of friends up here. They're all women who are in ministry, different types of ministry, from serving as volunteers part of the laity, part of the leadership team as elders or board. Some of them are pastors. Some of them are just speakers. And as we have this conversation, I wonder what you would hear as we talked about our experiences of being women in the context of ministry. Well, you would hear one thing. That one thing would be similar to stories that I shared with you earlier. They would be ones that brought discouragement, ones that caused these women to question their calling and their giftedness Stories that have caused them to hold back from being involved in ministry. But that's not the only story you would hear. You would hear a second story. It might be the more important story to hear out of it. And that would be 
the places and the times and the people where these women had been encouraged, the places where they had these uh, individuals who would uh, acknowledge their leadership, where they would have a friend or a spouse or a pastor or someone in the church that, that would say, you are gifted. Thank you for your giftedness. Thank you for using your giftedness. And these three themes would surface out of this conversation that you'd be hearing if you were that mouse in the corner. You'd hear a theme that talked about an affirmation of calling and giftedness. You'd hear a theme wrapped around this idea of providing training and encouragement. And you'd hear this theme that would give opportunities for those individuals to serve. So after affirmation, this training and encouragement, and these opportunities. Now, those same themes we can find in the Gospels, and we find them in the way that Jesus interacted with the women that were involved with his ministry. Jesus becomes a model for us in this. In a culture where women were treated as second-class citizens, Jesus restored value to the women and treated them with honor and respect. And how did he model that? Well, I'm going to suggest three practical ways. It's the same three themes that you'd hear in the conversation of this group of women that would be talking. The three practical ways would be, first, this affirmation of their calling. So Jesus, Craig brought this passage up in Luke chapter 8, is described as journeying from village to village with men and several women. He even named a couple of them, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, The fact that they're even named in the text speaks volumes. And they used their gifts, their spiritual gifts, but also their financial gifts. And Jesus honored them and affirmed their calling and giftedness in ministry. The second practical way is that Jesus spoke. He talked with women in public. That was unheard of in this culture. And as he talked with the women in public, like the Samaritan a woman at the well, in a society that determined her worth, Jesus validated her worth by engaging in a conversation, by teaching her, by encouraging her, by calling her out on her sin, by naming and having, holding her accountable. Jesus practically provided training and encouragement to a woman who became the first evangelist to Samaria. She brought others to the Lord and shared about the Lord. And the third practical way that we see Jesus is that by inviting women to follow him, like Mary and Martha, as disciples, he restored the value and purpose in their life. So Jesus provided this opportunity for them. He gave them a role in ministry and specifically in his ministry. So let us follow Jesus in his footsteps, and may we be a church that causes others to ask, not why has Christianity been unfair to women, but rather let's change the question. Let's ask, why has the church welcomed and honored women? And that's exactly what what the Apostle Paul was said about, was really making sure that men and women were equal and had this mutuality that I spoke of. The last uh, passage that I want to look at, it's in your teaching notes, so I'd like you to pull that out, is this passage in Galatians 3.28. And this is a landmark passage. You need to understand this. 
And let's say this out loud together, okay? Galatians 3.28. Is everybody there on the back page? Ready? There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our best historian, Thomas Cahill, who's not even a Christian, he said, this is the first statement of equality in human history. It's what Thomas Jefferson rested on uh, when he wrote the Declaration of Independence along with the philosophy of John Locke was this statement by the Apostle Paul. Is that there, Jesus came, in your last uh, fill in the blank, uh, he came for a number of reasons, but he came to form a new humanity where all people were equal. All people were equal. It's sort of putting back the pieces together that were broken in Genesis chapter 3. Putting the pieces back together that were broken as a result of sin. And I, I just want to underscore this, that how important this is for us. And thank God I belong to a church. Thank God I belong to a denomination that holds to this. That holds that male and female are equal. Galatians 3.28. And also, I, I simply want to say a word to women that are here uh, this morning who are listening online. Thank God, God made you the way you are. Recognize that you bear the image of God just like anybody. Ask God to help you become all that He wants you to be, and not just for your own sake, not just for climbing the ladder, not, not, not just for status, not for power, but to be able to serve God's planet and redeemed humanity. And then everybody here, I want us on a regular basis to understand that God created us men and, and, and women. What a great idea God had. Imagine for a second if it was just female or just male. At, at least from a guy's perspective, I can say this. It'd be a very boring life. It'd be a very dull life. That God had this, this imagination and plan for a man and woman to actually live together. And I'm grateful for that. And I think about my mom and my sister and my daughter, and I have to tell you this, I am so grateful for our church and our denomination when it comes to this. That encourages people to serve on the basis of giftedness and not on gender. I'm glad to be a part of a church that says to our daughters as well as our sons, come here and learn and grow and lead and teach and contribute and reach the fullest God-given potential that you have in reaching others. And I think about our elders, Katie Smith, Allison Miles, Terry Norby, Jesse Shokei. And I think about our staff leaders, Kay Weens, Carrie Law, Lisa Griffith, and Quinn Boss. That we have women who are leading, and I'm so thankful for this. Amen. As we look ahead to the continuing of this series, next week, just to give you the heads up, that we are going to be celebrating uh, one of our three services on our 30 years of being a church. 30 years. It's going to be a remarkable morning. And I'm going to be interviewing some people who were here back in 1987 at Rice Creek Elementary School in the very beginnings of our church. It's going to be a round table. I invite you to come for that. If you know people who were part of the church and are not here anymore, invite them to come on that Sunday, on next Sunday. And then lastly, I'm going to close out our FAQ series on uh, November 19th with another very easy topic. Can faith, can Christian faith and science coexist? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much that we come to uh, your word and we're reminded again and again 
of your desire for humanity, male and female. And for us as a church uh, to encourage one another as, as brothers and sisters in this family. And as we do, and we bring honor to each person, we bring dignity to each person, and ultimately we glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. At this time, we received this morning's offering, and this is a part of our worship time. This is not just sort of a, a you know, thing off to the side, but it's a way for us to steward the gifts and steward the resources that God has given us and as a way for us to lay it down as a way of worshiping our Creator.